Morning, everyone. So we, uh, we reached the, the last sermon in the series on Nehemiah, which uh, I've uh, called Promise Keeper. And um, I really felt before I came up here that this is something that some of us here really are going to need to kind of take into our hearts and take away with us that God is the faithful promise keeper. Um, I'm also going to talk about um, the second law of thermodynamics. You'll be delighted to know. Which uh, essentially says that, that energy dissipates or hot tends towards uh, cold. So you'll see how these two things are vaguely related as we go through. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that as we look at this passage, with the help of your Holy Spirit, we will each understand more clearly that you are the faithful promise keeper, even though it costs the life of your dear son Jesus to fulfill that promise. Deepen our faith and trust that you will keep your promises to us, despite the fact that we consistently and constantly fail to keep our promises to you. Amen. So, Nehemiah. We've seen that uh, this book is essentially a memoir by Nehemiah, um, who's a Jew, who's risen to a, a very important position, cupbearer, uh, in the Persian court to a chap called Artaxerxes I. It's, uh, it's perhaps 150 years since the Babylonians swept into Jerusalem, uh, destroyed the city, and, and took off all of the kind of aristocracy um, to, uh, you know, a, a, a away from Judah. Um, so it's 150 years ago, and uh, Nehemiah probably... I don't know, he's like the fourth or fifth generation that would have been born in exile. I don't think there would have been anybody alive at that time who could have remembered life before exile. To kind of put it into modern context, uh, Nehemiah wouldn't have been able to get a Judah passport. He would have been too remote to be able to, to do that. But culturally... He is not fully assimilated into the Persian way of life, is he? He's kept his faith. And he's kept this hope for the future that God will keep his covenant and restore Israel. Now, Nehemiah is, uh, is visited by a delegation of people who've gone to, to Judah, including, we think, his brother. And he's told that Jerusalem is in ruins and that those living in and around Jerusalem are really suffering. And that fact really upsets him. And he mourns and he fasts and he prays. And in particular, he prays this. Hopefully it will come up for you. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear my prayer. Nehemiah knows and accepts why the Israelites 
had been taken into exile. But he also knows that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. So he goes on to pray, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people, though they be at the farthest horizon, and he's about 800 miles away at this point, that is quite far, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. He had hope. And remarkably, the king, Artaxerxes, agrees that Nehemiah can go as his ambassador to Jerusalem. And he stays 12 years as governor. And during that time, as we've heard in other sermons, the walls are rebuilt, uh, corruption and oppression by the Jewish nobles is, uh, is dealt with. And the Israelites, they gather and rededicate themselves to being a holy people. So the walls are rebuilt. The city is rededicated. The priesthood is reestablished. And the Israelites promise to obey God's commands. Nehemiah, and, and now we reach chapter 13. Nehemiah returns to Susa. And whilst the period of his absence isn't exactly known, we know that during that time, the second law of thermodynamics kicks in spiritually. We get an increase in permissiveness and decline sets in. And this is a pattern that we come across time and time again, isn't it, in the Old Testament. The people of Israel fall into sin. Along comes a prophet or a king who calls out that sin. And repentance and a promise to follow God leads to a fresh start. And for a time, everything goes well. But before too long, the people of Israel once again fall into sin. Israelite promises clearly aren't worth much. But the promise of God stands firm. He stands ever ready to accept repentance and to forgive previous transgressions. God keeps his covenant of love. He is the promise keeper. So Nehemiah returns from Jerusalem and he discovers that three key undertakings made by the Israelites are being broken. And I just want to briefly talk about those three. In true Anglican form, uh, they are both, well, they're all beginning with the letter W. Uh, we have worship, work, and witness. Three undertakings. So first up, let's look at the undertaking to be faithful in worship. There we go. So Levites. Levites were descendants of Levi. Levi being one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And, and Levites had a special place in Israel, didn't they? The Levites were the priests and they were responsible for the upkeep and admin around the temple. In order for them to perform these roles though, they needed to be supported by the community. So the practice of tithing allowed the Levites to serve God and they didn't have to worry about their material well-being. When Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, he discovers that as a direct result of a lack of tithing, the Levites have had to go back to work in the fields. Suitably chastised 
Um, the Israelites recommence tithing and then the Levites can resume their duties and worship is restored. For the Israelites to be faithful in worship, it's absolutely necessary for them to give the first fruits of their labours to God. And actually, whilst much of the tithe would have gone to the Levites, it also, of course, was supposed to bless the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. Tithing's never a very popular topic for a sermon, uh, for the preacher or the congregation, but what we can see from this passage in Nehemiah is that giving was essential for worship to be occurring. And if as a church we are going to enjoy a community and fellowship, then we need to be generous with our finances, don't we? To provide the people and the facilities necessary to allow us to serve and worship God and be an example and blessing to the community. Now, it's not my intention in this sermon to make anyone feel uncomfortable about this. Uh, The New Testament teaching on giving is perfectly clear that each person should give as they can afford. And as John reminded us last week, this church has been amazingly blessed. We've got this fabulous building um, that we as a community have been able to, uh, to renew. But there is, however, this challenge for each of us on an ongoing basis to consider whether we are sufficiently working, uh, supporting the work of God through this church and uh, charities and the sort of wider church community. We read that the priest put in charge of the temple storehouses um, had essentially uh, let this chap Tobiah use that, those storerooms. And I'm not quite sure whether he was renting them as like a house um, or as some kind of where, you know, storage facility for his business. But there's an interesting thing here. It'd be easy to blame the priest, wouldn't it? for allowing God's house to be used in that way. But it was empty. These rooms were empty because the people weren't giving any tithes. Who's to blame for empty churches and converted chapels? As I was coming down here uh, this morning, I drove past Morley Chapel, which of course has been converted into housing. And when we see those things, you know, it's a sort of reminder, if you like, to all of us that Failure to provide financially for the work of God is actually almost reflective of a lack of faithfulness in worship. So I pray that each one of us will be faithful to God in our worship and uh, reflecting the fact that God is faithful to us in his covenant of love. So be faithful in worship. Number two, be faithful in work. Let me take you right back to Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed that seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from the work of creating that he'd done. And then if we roll forward a bit to Exodus 20. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. On it you should do no work, neither you, your animals, or any foreigners living in your towns. The first three commands deal with our relationship, if you like, with God, vertically. The next six deal 
more horizontally? Is it by chance that this one, the fourth one, seems to deal actually with that intersection between God and community? I'm not sure it is by chance. Observance, observance of the Sabbath is where our relationship with God and with each other kind of intersects. Now when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, he discovers that observance of the Sabbath has lapsed. Now that's perhaps not surprising. The Levites have been busy working in the fields. They're not working in the temple anymore. And Nehemiah writes this. Now remember what we just read in Exodus 20. In those days I saw the people of Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. There's a certain irony here because some of that stuff that was being brought in to sell in the market should really have been going off to the temple, shouldn't it? But um, put that aside for a second and we can see that, that this passage is showing that the Sabbath is not being observed. And it's not only the Israelites and their animals who are working on the Sabbath, but also the foreigners um, who are residing in Jerusalem. Because um, at least some of them uh, are organizing for fish to come up from Tyre into Jerusalem so you can get nice fresh fish on the Sabbath. Lovely. In short, the Sabbath appears to have become no different from any other day. And in fact, it might have been even worse than that. It might have been that the Sabbath has become the main market day. Because during the week, everyone's busy working in the fields. So not only were they not, they weren't going to the temple for their community. People were finding community in doing a little shopping. Why does that matter? Well, community is good. But in this case, God is not involved. I found an old Guernsey Press clipping well, it was online, but you know. On the 11th of December 2015, the controls which said what, shop, what shops could open or otherwise in Guernsey uh, changed. And the regulations around Sunday trading, they've been in place since about 1911 when the Dean of Guernsey had said that opening shops on a Sunday wasn't in the interest of the, the morality and well-being of the community. Commenting on the deregulation, our very own Roy Sarr said that the news was devastating and that Guernsey would never be the same again. In the 21st century, I actually think it's pretty much unavoidable that many people need to work on a Sunday. There's a lot of essential services that need to be done. And, it, and, and, and I'm not kind of advocating a boycott of all shops that open on a Sunday, and I'm not even suggesting that as Christians we're not allowed to go and buy the pint of milk when we've gone short, or even her heretically some petrol um, on a Sunday. But I do think that each of us need to uh, examine our priorities and our mindsets and make sure that Sunday is special. Is Sunday the day when we meet with God and with the community, or is God getting pushed out? May we be faithful to God in our work as God is faithful to us in his covenant of love. So we've uh, come up to the last W, witness. 
be faithful in witness. Let me take you back to Numbers 22. In it, we read that the Israelites have turned up. Um, They've been wandering around the desert. They've turned up to the River Jordan and they've camped opposite Jericho. Quite understandably, the king of Moab, Balak, he's pretty worried about this enormous horde turning up on his doorstep. So he goes to the prophet Balaam and he says, I'll give you a really nice reward if you could just curse the Israelites for me. Um, Balaam uh, asks God about this and God says, well, you can't curse them, I'm afraid, because they are a blessed people. But according to the book of Revelation, Balaam did tell Balak how he could cast a stumbling block before the Israelites. And that was essentially by enticing them with sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. Or in another way, another way of putting it, he could sort of try to get the Israelites to uh, become like the others around them rather than stay distinctive. When Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, he observed that the men of Judah uh, had married women from other tribes. Now, that isn't the problem. It's not the marrying women from other tribes that was the problem. It was the fact that as a result of doing that, they then weren't bringing up their children to understand their heritage as a holy people set apart for God. And he notes that many of the children couldn't even speak Hebrew, so they certainly couldn't really have learned from the scriptures. They were failing to bring up their children to understand their history and to know and worship the one true God. And Nehemiah reminds them about the downfall of Solomon. Do you remember? I mean, he's probably the wisest man who ever lived, uh, but in his old age, it says that his wives kind of turned his heart away to follow other gods. Not, not that he abandoned God, it just says that his heart wasn't wholly devoted to the one true God. It wasn't wholly devoted. And in doing so, Solomon broke the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods but me. Being faithful in our witness is no easy task, is it? I mean, it, it wasn't easy in the time of Nehemiah, and it's not easy now. But in 1 Peter 2, we read words that would have been equally meaningful, I think, in the time of Nehemiah as they are for us today. And Vicky read these to us. And Peter says that we, we are a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we can declare praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. Once we hadn't received mercy, now we've received mercy. And Peter goes on to say, live such good lives in the community, amongst the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they actually have seen your good deeds. Increasingly, and um, my wife is always complaining that I listen to the 10 o'clock news because it's sort of, news is unremittingly bad news, isn't it? Um, You know, I kind of feel like the values of the world around me are kind of diverging from those that I would hold to be true. Maybe this is just a function of getting old. Um, But I do wonder actually whether this is a feeling that has been consistent 
throughout time, that Christians feel that throughout the ages. Because the Bible makes it clear that being a faithful witness is really a tough path to follow. Um, It's really not easy. It's far easier to allow ourselves to become assimilated into the prevailing local culture. Nehemiah, amazingly, didn't. He didn't become assimilated into Persian culture. The challenge for us is to try not to become assimilated into the secular culture around us. I just pray that we're gonna be able to be faithful in our witness following that example of Jesus. So let me conclude. Thanks to Jesus, we are living under this new covenant. We sang about it earlier. You know, for generations, Israel ignored the terms of their covenant with Yahweh. They broke commandments and they lived following their own definitions of right and wrong. And they sort of oscillated between coming back and asking for forgiveness, but actually turning back towards following their own ways. But through Jesus, we have the law written on our hearts. And we have this complete forgiveness of sin and an ability to be faithful in our worship and our work and our witness. But how does that work? Let me come back to the second law of thermodynamics, which says essentially that that heat dissipates, that we go from hot towards cold. Amazingly, we now have the power, the energy of the Holy Spirit. And it's by that that we can stay hot and not drift towards cold. We can reset our relationship essentially with God every day. You know, there's that thing that says his mercies are new every morning. Yes, they are new every morning. And it may be that that some of us really need to remember that God is the faithful promise keeper. And that we really want to reset our relationship. Like here, right now. Um, and, and, And if that is the way that you feel that you would like to reset your relationship, there are gonna be people who will pray with you out the back. Um, after I, I, I sit down. But as I close, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the faithful promise keeper. You're the faithful covenant giver who's always ready to receive us back into fellowship with you through our repentance and rededication of our lives. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Father, we recognize that that we so often fail in our faithfulness to you, but that you are willing to forgive us for that and welcome us back afresh. And in recognition recognition of your unfailing love for us, we we just pray that you will help us um, this week and through our Christian walk to be faithful in worship, to be faithful in work, 
and to be faithful in witness through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.